But it says in chapter uh, 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And it says, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so seventh day is a day of rest. He set it aside. He sanctified the day of rest later uh, in the institution of the law, the seventh day. Uh, because of its sanctification or setting apart, uh, we know that as what? What day was that identified with or called? The Sabbath day. Sabbath means seventh. And uh, in your outline, you'll see that little yellow box there. I covered that uh, when we were doing our study on Colossians and we were doing an online study. I took a whole uh, 30 minutes or so to, to address about whether Christians should keep the seventh day Sabbath. Sabbath means seventh, just like tithe means tenth. You can't tithe 15%. You tithe 10 and give offering of five. Tenth means tithe means tenth. Sabbath means seventh. Uh, why don't Christians still keep that? And I get into all that, and there's the information there if you want to go back and look at that on YouTube. Very, very simple, straightforward. Um, get into that. Um, and so in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. One of the things that the Sabbath pictures, Hebrews 4, connects this to the final completion work of Christ, that in Christ all of our works, we rest in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 made that connection there. So the uh, Sabbath day is the only commandment that is not reiterated in the New Testament for Christians to keep. But again, uh, look at that. That has a lot more detail in there and um, distinguishing it between the Lord's day and the seventh day Sabbath, which... Um, uh, but anyway, so here is where uh, the connection is. Uh, and then it says something we took a little time uh, getting into was uh, the name of God, the Lord God. Uh, the name uh, Lord, anytime you see it capitalized in your Bible, that's a, that's a way to signal non-Hebrew writers, or readers rather, in English. When you see it capitalized, that, that's telling you that that's the name Yahweh, okay? Uh, the name Yahweh. Uh, traditionally, sometimes they've called it Jehovah, but a more accurate is the word Yahweh. And then God is the, word, is the name of God that we see in chapter 1. The name of God. What's the other name of God? Elohim. And that is the name that is used in chapter 1. And what Moses is wanting to make sure that he does is link the two names of Elohim and Yahweh that the same creator God, Yahweh, is, a, is the covenantal name of God. And what Moses is doing by linking those, and you see several times in chapter 2, the Lord God, the Lord God, is he's linking that the same God of creation is the same God of covenant, Yahweh, that we see uh, in chapter 2, and, and more uh, of that as, a, as the proper name of God, okay? And so we talked about man being formed the dust of the ground again. This was all last week, how uh, God breathed into uh, his uh, nostrils and he became a living being. Uh, and then in chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, 
Uh, we see the two trees in the garden that will play a significant role of those, uh, those uh, command, that command to uh, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, uh, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you see the, those two trees that are introduced there that uh, is the garden or is the tree of life and the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, And so... Uh, as we kind of move forward, we want to get to where we want to get to tonight, as there's a lot of... Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, and I'm not sure I did it last week, was that in... And I don't have it on the screen, but I think I have it in your outline there, of how Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus made... We'll see a little later in a different context, but Jesus... Uh, quoted and made reference to the events in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he made reference to those and, and talked about them, and I think it's safe to assume accepted them as a historical reality when he referred to them in, in his discussion with the Pharisees. And, and uh, so Jesus uh, quoted Genesis, the events of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and uh, and really, he didn't distinguish between one and two. He quoted them as, as one harmonious event. Uh, verses 10 through 14, uh, we won't get into the rivers in uh, uh, the garden. But today, two of those rivers we do know uh, because they still uh, are existing, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Tigris and Euphrates begin down around the uh, bottom or come, you know, begin down at the Persian Gulf, run all the way through Iraq and Syria. You can still see that on the map today. Uh, but I think it's pretty roughly, most would say, without being able to exactly identify where the Garden of Eden is, it was somewhere in Mesopotamia. It was in that part of the world, would be safe to say. So, uh, but those two rivers that are mentioned, two of the four are, uh, we do know where those are identified. But in verses 15 through 17, we see uh, what uh, really is on your, on your uh, page, uh, page two, God's command to Adam. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, again, this is all from last week, uh, to work it and keep it. And we pointed out that work, the value of work, was something God instituted before the fall. Sloth is more a characteristic after the fall. But work, but, un, but it wasn't working for man's uh, own self-benefit, but was working mankind. Man was working as a, co, as a manager, if you will. Sometimes people use the word regent, a co-regent. A regent is someone who, does, uh, who operates under the authority of a king. Uh, as what a regent does, but man was working, and, and God gave him a command, put him in the Garden of Eden, and he was to work it and, and to keep it. And verse 16, and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man there. And don't, don't miss that word commanded. That was God uh, that uh, theologians call this the covenant of works, covenant of works, meaning that it was a conditional covenant that, uh, that the Lord established here in this, uh, 
in this beginning relationship. So even in the very beginning, God in his, as a covenantal God, we see this covenant, covenant of the creator making commands to the lesser, uh, Adam. And the command was uh, that you may surely eat of the tree. Actually, the command was part of tending of the garden and keeping it. But also the command was that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And verse, and, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall what? You shall die. You got all these other trees. All the others that you can have. But this one that the Lord established you cannot. So he commanded the man, uh, put him in the garden to work it, commanded him and gave him this command of what he should do. And then it says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. One of the things that um, we see that Adam did was to go through a various naming of the animals uh, and giving them that identity. He did not, unlike we'll see here in a moment, he named woman after himself. The word in the Hebrew uh, can be translated Adam-ish. Whoa, not, you know, everybody likes to make a, whoa, man, I get that. But that isn't really what it is, uh, the Hebrew. It just means that it's making the connection that uh, this is someone who is like me, who is part of my substance. And we'll look at that here in a minute. But don't miss, again, as we come to the middle here where we'll pick up about God creates the first woman, don't miss the nature of that covenant. And one thing I wanted to uh, uh, read about that covenant, something that uh, R.C. Sproul wrote that I thought was helpful uh, in seeing the significance of that covenant. Let me just read you something real brief here about the covenant of works, the covenant. It says that when Adam and Eve were created, they stood in a moral relationship with God, their creator. They possessed a duty of obedience to him without any inherent claim to reward or blessing for such obedience. In his love, mercy, and grace, however, God voluntarily entered into a covenant with his creatures by which he added a promise of blessing to his law. First law was do this, don't do this. This was not a covenant of equal partners, okay? Uh, but one that rested on God's initiative and his divine authority. Now, here's what I just want to make sure you make this connection because the events that unfold uh, from chapter 3 forward are, are critical to understanding the, the importance of this covenant or, and the breaking of the covenant. The original covenant between God and humankind was a, was a covenant of works. In this covenant, God required perfect and total obedience to his rule. He promised eternal life as the blessing of obedience, but threatened mankind with death for disobeying God's law. All human beings, really important here, all human beings from Adam to the present are inescapably members of this covenant. And they are inescapably, again, talk about outside of Christ, the human race, and Romans 5.12 is an important verse there among many in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. That because of Adam's disobedience and violating the covenant, we therefore were all covenant breakers. We were all violators of God's covenant that was established there. And so all human beings are in a covenant relationship to God, now listen, either as covenant breakers or covenant keepers, okay? That is the nature of humanity, that, and that's why the things and the events and the uh, things that unfold here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are critical to understanding the rest and the development of Scripture as we move forward, all right? All right, let's look at part 2 here. Pick it up. It's in the middle of your, your outline there. Page 2. God creates the first woman. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, it would mean that God is saying, I will make a helper. I will make someone that is comparable to Adam. And Adam... Uh, in naming all of the uh, various animals. I don't have it on the screen. But it says that... Uh, uh, verse... Uh, okay, maybe I do have it here. Sorry. I kind of added to this. Now, out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim had formed every beast of the field. Now, remember what he just said there. Let me go back. Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And as part of getting Adam to understand his need for somebody comparable to him, uh, God has him on this little project. Uh, now out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever... The man, Adam, called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Uh, you may have, uh, again, realize you may have a different translation. Uh, the Amplified uses the word a helper. That means somebody suitable, adapted, completing uh, the NIV, New American Standard, speak about a helper suitable. Uh, of course, the Old King James speaks about a help meet for him. It's interesting in verse 18, go back to verse 18, that the word here that speaks of helper, uh, and again, this is not in your outline, I apologize. I kind of added this uh, after I did the outline. That the Hebrew word is ezer, if I'm saying my Hebrew right, but you don't know any more than I do, so I can say whatever I want, right? Um, but E-Z-E-R is the Hebrew word that is translated helper, and it, the term broadly means to render aid, okay? To render aid, to render help. Uh, while it is used to refer to subordinates, the word does not necessarily mean inferiority. Okay, so that's important for us to understand about, again, God creating woman. That, uh, in fact, in Hosea 13.9, God is called Israel's 
Ezer or Ezer, uh, meaning their helper. So it, it speaks of one coming to rendering aid, helper. That's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but it doesn't mean necessarily inferiority, okay? Um, and later, the wordplay in this, in this event of naming the animals, uh, one writer said, is to draw attention to Adam that God's command back in chapter 1, verse 28, when he said to uh, take dominion and replenish the earth, that guess what? Adam couldn't do that by himself. Right? He couldn't do that alone. He couldn't obey God's command, so he needed a helper. He needed someone that, yes, men, would render aid <laughs> to him. Okay, And in verses 19 through 20, uh, in the naming of the various beasts, as he gave names to all the livestock, uh, there was none that were suitable uh, to Adam. I read a, a quote from uh, Mark Twain, who wasn't necessarily a Christian, but I thought this was funny, uh, that Mark Twain had a joke where he described Adam coming home to Eve after naming all the animals. And Eve looked at an elephant and said, what did you name that big animal? And Adam replied, I called it an elephant. And Eve asked, why did you call it an elephant? And Adam answered, because it looked like an elephant. All right. That was Mark Twain, so there you go. But for Adam, there was no helper among the animals, all right? So God, God knew this, but God specifically would form what it was necessary for God's mandate, for God to fulfill, for man, Adam, to fulfill God's purpose and fulfill the covenant. And so we see in verses 21 through 22 that God makes the first woman from Adam's side. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, put use, uh, this is the first surgery, gives him some anesthesia, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, and literally in the Hebrew that just means fr took from his side, okay? Uh, took from his side, the rib, uh, and closed up its place with flesh. Now, we don't really know exactly what God took from Adam's side, but, you know, there, there's kind of this myth that women have one more rib than men because of the way Eve was created. That's a myth, okay? That's not, a, that's not true. That's a myth, all right? So in case you're uh, concerned about having a, an extra rib there, that's uh, not, not the case. But there's a beautiful Jewish tradition, and I have this quote on your outline, you can read it, uh, a beautiful Jewish tradition, and I've seen it attributed to different people who quote it, but saying that God made woman not out of the man's foot to be under him, I've read this at weddings, nor out of his head to be over him, but what she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her and from next to his heart that he might Love her. I always think that's important to see that there. All right? So see the companionship. See how God knew what was suitable for Adam and ultimately what, what the commandment he gave Adam to fulfill that he was not complete. And it's the only time here that uh, so far that, that God has said anything that he's made is not good. He said it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good. Loneliness uh, is certainly not 
part of God's purpose and plan. Even think about it, even within the triune Godhead, there is community, if you could say it that way. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all right? So, so loneliness, and again, not God needed a buddy, uh, but he, he did this for Adam's sake, all right? That he made a helper uh, for Adam, okay? And uh, that she was related to him, verse 23, actually verse 22, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman, and he, I love this, he brought her to the man way of saying this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He doesn't even know what bones are or flesh, you know, I don't know if he knows, and she shall be called woman. But in the Hebrew, in the New Living Translation, probably is the only translation that brings this out, it literally, what he says is, at last, or finally. I mean, he's excited, guys. He's excited. He says, at last, finally. I mean, you were trotting all the giraffes and the elephants and the Dogs and the cats and the lizards and I said at last. Yes. God, you did good. <laughs> you did good. Now that's me. That's the message translation. But anyway, but he says at last uh, there in verse 23, finally, this at last, the ESV has similar translation. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Don't miss what he is saying is, is that she is a part of me, but she's different, okay? She is comparable to me. She is, she is, a, she is someone who is very much, uh, there's a oneness there, but yet she is different, right? And that certainly is something that is, still, is somewhat become very confusing in our culture today, any kind of difference between male and female. In fact, uh, I won't give you too many because it's too depressing, but watch this little video clip and uh, I think it's self-explanatory. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in okay. this context. So I'm you not a biologist. The meaning of the word "woman" is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition, Senator. In my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the right. law and I decide. Well, so I'm not. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. Um, hey, thanks for watching. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had another video clip, but it was just too depressing. And it was at a woman's rally, and a guy was going around asking all these women at a women's rally, the simple question, can you tell me what a woman is? Young, old, black, white, everybody, it's whatever you want it to be. Um, well, if you feel like a woman, you're a woman. I mean, and, uh, you know, you watch stuff like that. I was watching, again, it seems to be more prevalent, 
But I mean, there are still times I will find myself watching and I'll literally feel my mouth gaping because it's just like, what has happened? But I think what has happened is we're not, we're not on the steps of what Romans 1 says. We are in very much in Romans 1 where there is confusion and a suppression of the truth. Um, anyway, so God clearly made a distinction and made man, male, biological male, biological female. And uh, I should know this, but I didn't do too good. And I did good enough in biology in high school to know what the difference between a man and a woman was. All right, just so you know. But the male has a Y chromosome. I'm looking at some of our medical team here, right? Women have two X's, and a man has an X and a Y. Now, there obviously are biological I would say aberrations, but, but biology of a male, female, two X chromosomes, and an X and a Y for the male, among many other identifiable characteristics. I will leave that to uh, other days or time. I'll leave that to Jim's transformation class. Um, <laughs> notice, the <laughs> notice the quote there. This is a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. And it's on your, an, your handout. If men and women are different, are they equal? Elizabeth Elliot, her husband Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot's with the Lord. Her husband Jim Elliot was one of those missionaries that were martyred. Uh, was it in Ecuador? Down in, uh... But Elizabeth Elliot, uh, quoted in a commentary by James Boyce, says, quote, she says, In what sense is red equal to blue? They are equal only in the sense that both are colors in the spectrum. Apart from that, they are different. In what sense is hot equal to cold? They are both temperatures. But beyond this, it's almost meaningless to talk about equality. And that terminology is so much in our culture and the blurring of the lines that it almost seems just to even talk about it. I mean, think about your relatives who perhaps have been uh, with the Lord, say, in the past 10 years or longer. Imagine them waking up and turning on the news or turning on uh, yesterday. And again, if you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I've criticized Trump, Biden, the whole deal. I'm not a, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm an umpire called Strikes and Fouls in my opinion. But I was watching an interview with the President of the United States, Mr. Biden, and part of this little group that he was being interviewed with was a fully, was a man completely dressed, makeup, the whole bit, everything, who was dressed as a woman, asking the President serious, you know, policy issues on transgenderism, that whole thing. And you're thinking, what does the rest of the world think when they see this kind of craziness? So notice again, as we're going to see in chapter 3, that Satan makes a frontal assault upon man and woman. Wants to absolutely destroy man and woman. And guess what? He's still doing that. And, and the very fundamental identity that God made man and humankind, and I'm male, female, 
in his image, gave them a, uh, a cultural mandate to uh, replenish the earth or fulfill the earth and multiply and take dominion over the earth and uh, establish, again, as God's vice regents of God's created earth. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's. Um, Satan has been, and as we'll see, is going to be the interloper, interloper uh, in thwarting the purposes of God that we'll see starting next week. But notice 24 and 25, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, he doesn't name her anything similar to what he, whatever he named the animals. But he names her an identity that attaches her identity with him. Because he sees that she is, she is like him. She is him, but yet different in God's, in the creation. You see that? Uh, woman, uh, Adam-ish, man-ish, uh, that the woman is named. Therefore, now this is not Adam speaking, this is the Lord speaking. Don't miss the different dialogue there. Therefore, this is Yahweh speaking, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice that in the establishment of this uh, and that's number five there, I think, on your outline, verse 24 and 25. Uh, the marriage, this was a marriage. This was a union between Adam and Eve. God did this. They shall become one flesh, that distinction, joined together. Not just sexually, not just in the fruit of their um, relationship and bearing children, but but a spiritual union, a spiritual uniting, a relational uniting as one flesh. Uh, that God gives this principle that husbands and wives. And what's interesting uh, that, and I won't turn to it, it's not on the screen, and I'm not, I may have just had the references there, but I mentioned how Jesus himself picks up on this historical event of husband-wife, of marriage, and makes the connection. Listen, a man predicts his death and resurrection and pulls it off. Right? Pay attention. Pay attention to what he says. And in Matthew 19, you may... Again, do I have the reference there? I know I don't have it written out. But let me just read a few things to refresh your memory. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away into Galilee, verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, really more to trap him, Right? And so they said, oh, here's a good question. Um, what do you think about cremation? No, they didn't ask that. Um, now, some of you don't know. That's, that's going to be an inside joke. Um, and the Pharisees, verse 3, came to him and tested him and asked him, is it lawful, almost, almost, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Yeah, bring up divorce uh, for any cause. That's the, that's the hinge there, any cause. And he answered, and here's what he answered in 19.4 of Matthew, Have you not read? Of course they had, they knew this. But notice he's citing it in an authoritative way. What is he citing? Have you not read that he 
who created them from the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, made them male, XY, female, 2X, female. He made them male and female. I mean, just the physicality of how the Legos fit together. Hello? I mean, it's... And I'm not even getting into all the evil, satanic stuff that is going on, even here in our, in our uh, region of hospitals that are secretly involved in giving children gender transitioning drugs and manip and uh, uh, not manipulate but uh, uh, mutilation thank you it is manipulate but mutilational surgery and uh, is just evil who's behind all this the democrats no satan is out to destroy the image bearers of god and then he quotes verse 5 of Matthew 19. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. All I want you to see there is that Jesus affirms in an authoritative way the events that take place in Genesis chapter 2. He cites them as true history and he cites them as authoritative as God's word. And Paul in Ephesians 5, I'll just read it. Um, remember he talks about when he addresses husbands, Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives, and this goes back to the one flesh, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then he says, and he quotes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So again, just see the dynamic connection all through and what God has established there. You know, and sometimes people will say, well, you know, what's a piece of paper? Well, what is a piece of paper? Uh, what's, what, what is a ring? I mean, what is, go back and say, what is it that God established there in a unique monogamous, you know what monogamous is? One man, one woman. Now, I get it. Sin has damaged and infected and destroyed much of this image bearers. All of us, all of us have been affected in our sexual identities and cravings and all of that. All of that has been affected because of sin. Sin has damaged, as again, as, as Romans 5, uh, through one man, sin spread to all. All of us have been damaged as image bearers and therefore the purposes of God and our relationships to the opposite sex all of that has been messed up uh, I believe uh, and I just have a quote there it says Morris I believe it was uh, I didn't write his first name but the one who's done a lot of work on creation he says, the institution of monogamous marriage, something our culture has long departed. And don't get me wrong, I don't, it's never been the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie. I get all that, right? But if you track 
if you track even just the culture to roughly the 50s and into the 60s, and you begin to see the effects of what, you know, we sometimes, or not we, but it's called the sexual revolution. I mean, before the easeability of access to, say, abortion, uh, or even birth control, and again, I'm not getting into, that's not my point, but, but abortion will just, and, um, you know, there was a certain, there was a certain cultural, uh, Fence, if you will, that sex outside of marriage, not that there wasn't sex outside of marriage, I'm not naive, I, but, but there was a certain that if the consequence of someone who became pregnant was the consequences were significantly more dramatic before the easeability of cheap, you know, abortions, even one no-fault divorce that came later, you know, in the 60s and 70s, um, even, even the, uh, again, the role of, but marriage and having a child, even if it was the proverbial shotgun wedding, there was something about the culture provided in a very imperfect way a certain fence, if you will, that for the most part, it was culturally problematic that if you're going to be promiscuous, more than likely you may be pregnant or with a child, because a lot of the safeguards that now, now what's the big thing? You don't need to go to abortion clinic. You don't need to, you, you can go to Walgreens, you can go to CVS. You can get a pill. Um, privacy. You don't need. You don't need access to any. In other words, cheap divorce, no fault divorce, uh, the quote unquote sexual freedom, the advent of uh, mainstream pornography, pornography with Hugh Hefner and Playboy, where Playboy now was up in the mainstream. It was a uh, you know it was there with your Time magazine and Newsweek. Just look at the cultural digression. And it, again, sin is never satisfied to just eat a little bit and go off to the corner and be quiet, does it? Sin always wants more and more and more. Think about how things have so radically changed in the past 15 to 20 years. I mean, e hold on. Even to where... Obama and Biden both, not too long back, both were, I mean, historically, Biden was opposed to homosexual marriage. Obama, even during his first term, was opposed, now, at least in a public setting, I doubt they really, but now, if you're opposed to that, and you're a politician or a government official, it won't be seen as, well, you know, he's a person of deep faith, blah, blah. No, you will be called every conceivable name and racist would be the kindest thing. But man shall leave. And notice that the dynamic of this relationship is a change in responsibility that it will cause, the Lord says, is going to cause a man 
to separate, not necessarily mean they'll, but it just means that he's to leave and cleave <laughs> to, his, to, this, to this woman, this bride. Um, and they shall become one flesh. Now let me leave with you this last part here, because this is really verse 25 as a hinge to what happens in chapter 3. Then we'll look at that starting next week. But in verse 24 and 25, it says, notice the language there, the man and his wife, not roommate. It says they were both naked, as we say in the South. And they were, what, not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed? Now again, naked is more than they just didn't have clothes on. It, the nakedness is meaning that there was an innocence about them. There was not a, uh, the lack of shame that they could be naked, meaning that they could be open and totally exposed to one another and also before God, and there was no shame. There was no, what, what do we find as well, you already know ahead, most of you should, when you come over to verse 10 of chapter 3, the Lord God was walking in the cool of the day. Adam, where art thou? <laughs> right? uh, and he was hiding, and he says, I was hiding because we were, I was afraid. What? And they made uh, their own clothing to cover after, after, they re, after they sinned, after the fall, when they disobeyed and broke the covenant that God had made there, they became covenant breakers. Therefore, they, what did the Lord say? That in the day you eat of this, you shall do what? And as we'll see next week, Adam's like, I mean, Satan's like, come on, come on, not going to die. Not going to die. Guess what? Satan's still saying that. Oh, come on, you're not going to die. You got to live your life. You got to make yourself happy, Lynette. Come on, you know, right? I'll edit that out. I won't put that in there. <laughs> You're not going to die. Lord says you'll die. There's judgment. There's consequences. You violate. And again, as we'll see, what is, what do we see? Satan's modus operandi. Did God really say? And you see that again and again and again. You're telling me the Bible, come on. You're not going to believe that work of fiction. Why don't, we, why don't we build a church around Harry Potter? I mean, fantasy. It's just as good a fantasy. Maybe better fantasy. Did God really say, come on, you can't rely on that. They were naked and not ashamed. And that's, that's a pivotal, pivotal Verse, they found complete gratification and joy in the union that God had between them and in their service before God. And here's, here's something, and maybe this is something Sproul brought out in his study Bible. With no inward principle of evil to work on, the solicitation to sin did not come from within them, it came from 
outside. In other words, they were created innocent. And we can argue, you know, obviously they had a capacity to sin because they did. But in their innocence, in their, because where we see them pre-fall, that term naked and not ashamed, they were, they were without, there was nothing, to, they were in a pure, if you could, a pure, complete relationship, at least that's what it should have been. Satan says, well, you know, it's not really complete because look what you're missing out on. And so we'll pick that up next week when chapter 3, verse 1, after we come off of they were naked, they were both naked and were not ashamed. And again, don't worry, don't, when you read scripture, don't, numbers and chapter headings were all added, but Moses wants to see, to see this as one continuous flow. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said? There was no cunningness in them. There was no guile. Remember Jesus said Nathaniel, here's a man who has no guile. There was no guile, but we see that hinge as we get into chapter 3 of next week.